Um, open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 1. And I'm guessing a, a lot of people probably remember the first time that they met the person who would eventually become their spouse. Uh, honestly, for me, it was a pretty unremarkable moment. I was working in the Dominican Republic, and I was serving there as an intern leading missions trips for different church or churches that would bring their junior high and high school kids down. And uh, we would meet our team as they stepped off the bus, and it was my job to get to know them quickly and get them acclimated. Uh, they, they were going to be working on building orphanages with us. And I remember the first time I saw Leanne, who's now been my wife for 13 years. And that first moment I laid my eyes on her, nothing happened. Um, because I had a job to do. And my job, no, she wasn't a student. Thank you. She's, thank you for pointing that out. Um, she's actually a little older than me. But, um, but I'm not supposed to say that. Wow, this is really not going well. Um, okay, so everybody gets off the bus, right? And no sparks flew, nothing like that. I, I just was like very task-oriented. I needed to get to know their names. I needed to get them to work. I needed to uh, begin to kind of knit my heart to theirs so that we could study Scripture together and I could point them to Jesus. And Leanne was just another person for me to get to know so I could do my job. But is it interesting how I can reflect back on that moment now and seeing her step off that bus and meeting her for the first time fills my heart with a lot of joy. Because now in retrospect, that moment is colored by 17 years of friendship and 13 years of marriage. And all of that joy sort of floods into the memory of that moment because our life has been filled with that joy in friendship and fellowship. And what I'm getting at is that fellowship, real friendship with other people produces joy, doesn't it? Knowing and being known, although that's a somewhat dangerous experience, when you really walk through that with somebody who also loves you and who you love, sharing life together, the fellowship of true friendship, that's a great joy for the human heart. And this morning as we look at our verses from 1 John chapter 1 here, we're going to be reminded of this idea that we have fellowship with God, and that fellowship produces joy. It's the greatest joy that man can know. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for all that your word teaches about 
your pursuit of fellowship with mankind. That you are a God who loves us, and that love spurred you on to seek reconciliation with your creatures who rebelled against you. And we thank you for this incredible and and, and incomprehensible truth that your word speaks of, that we have fellowship with you. And I pray through that fellowship this morning, God, that you would minister to our hearts in particular, that you would fill us with joy. God, would you be merciful to me and use my time in preparation, my prayer, my study of your word to bless your people, that they might get a glimpse of your glory this morning and be encouraged to fall down at your feet and worship you and be filled with desire to seek you and be filled with joy that they have fellowship with you. God, we look to you to do that work this morning. Amen. So last week I said John is proclaiming a message and the message is that God has truly come in the person of Jesus Christ He was made manifest to the apostles, and they now testify that what they heard and what they saw, what they touched, was in fact the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And if you remember last week, I asked the question, what is the gospel? And the answer that I offered was simply put, the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, because through him, We have eternal life. And that's not just an everlasting life, although that is part of what eternal life means, but it's also an eternal quality of life. Jesus said that we would have abundant life through him. That's a rich, full, satisfying, purposeful life that comes to us through our connection to Christ, to the God who made us, who loves us, who sustains us. And now in verses 3 through 4, John's going to further clarify. He wants to kind of tease out what this eternal life looks like. So John's going to help us understand that if the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, then the good news is Christ came that we might have fellowship with God. And that's what true life is fellowship with God. Maybe you heard it in John 17 as Gabe was reading it, verse 3. That's essentially what that verse says. So what I want to do today is just examine the two big ideas that we encounter here in verses 3 and 4. The first is fellowship with God, and then this spring of joy that flows out of that fellowship. So John writes that what he proclaims is intended to build fellowship with his writers, and then he says his fellowship is, or their fellowship is with God. That's verse 3. But the first fellowship that John mentions is the fellowship between him and his audience, the people he's writing to. Now, the Greek word for fellowship, you probably know this, it's one that gets tossed around quite a bit, is koinonia. And in secular Greek, what that word really means is, is common. It means to share things in common. It was used to describe tribes of people who had similar things in common with one another. 
Now, we don't use the word tribe too much anymore in our language, but we still are a tribalistic society, if you think about it. It's all too easy to think of ourselves in terms of the tribes that we belong to, the groups that we associate with, the tribes that divide us by political views or maybe economic status, the hobbies or interests we have. Maybe it's our skin color or the neighborhood that we live in or maybe even in the church context, the theological views that we hold that distinguish us from other people. It's almost impossible to avoid sort of attaching yourself to some kind of tribe and allying yourself to that tribe. But the kind of fellowship that John's talking about here, fellowship with God, this is a fellowship that transcends all tribes. I hope you understand that. If you belong to Jesus, then every other tribe that you might see yourself belonging to means nothing in comparison to your fellowship with God. The only tribe that we belong to as Christians that has any merit or any consequence to our real life is the tribe of Jesus Christ, that we share things in common with him. We share things in common with his people. We are part of his fellowship. We belong to his family. And sadly, all too often, sort of underneath the veneer, the church is actually not all that different than the world divided into little tribes that are meaningless in the eyes of Jesus. And we need to understand that our fellowship, first and foremost, as Christians, is our identity to Christ. We share that in common, and that is most important of all. That doesn't mean you can't belong to other tribes. It just means that if any tribe demands greater allegiance than Christ, then we forsake that fellowship. All other tribes must be forsaken for the greater fellowship with Christ. This is what Jesus meant when he said that unless you hate your mother or your father, you're not worthy to be his disciple. And again, we need to hear this because it's all too easy to see ourselves as like an American and then a Christian or a Calvinist and then a Christian, or a Republican, and then a Christian, or a resident of Maricopa first, and then as a Christian, or first as our racial or ethnic identity, and then after that as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Or maybe one that's going on recently, we identify with the tribe of people who wear masks, or the tribe of people who don't wear masks. And then after that, as a Christian. But our fellowship is with one another because our fellowship is with Christ, and He is central to that. And all differences then become irrelevant in light of His glory and in light of our fellowship with Him. Moving on, our fellowship with Jesus then is possible because God Himself has removed all of the obstacles that might get in the way. There can be no fellowship, there can be no friendship where there are obstacles that might stand in the way. If you're married, you know what I mean. 
It's that nagging feeling that you can't go to bed because that discussion was unresolved. That issue has been not dealt with properly. At the heart of the concept of fellowship is an intimate togetherness. And so John would have us understand that the obstacles that interfere with our fellowship with God, they've been removed, and they've been removed through Christ himself. We have fellowship because God has torn down those obstacles. And I want to just point out the two primary obstacles that interfere with our fellowship with God. The first and foremost, obviously, is our sin. If you are in sin and your sins have never been forgiven, you have no fellowship with God. And the glory of the Christian gospel is that God chose to remove those sins through the work of Jesus Christ, although man was wholly responsible for the dysfunction, God overcame that impassable barrier. God, through the body and blood of Christ, the sacrifice of his atonement, overcame that obstacle. Now, what that means is that our sin makes us offensive to God. And I hope you have the humility to admit that. Because the Christian gospel requires that you acknowledge that you are very unlovely in the eyes of God, which is why Christ needed to come. And the gospel says that though we were sinners, though we were unlovely, God didn't choose to hold that offense against us, but instead he sent his son to die for us. And on the cross, Christ forgave you of your sins so that the greatest barrier between you and God could be removed. But the gospel actually does something more than that because our great obstacle between or preventing fellowship between us and God is not only that uh, God is offended by our sin, but think about this. We as humans are offended by God. The concept of God is offensive to us. A brief conversation with a secularist will reveal this very quickly. Those who deny the Christian faith are very vocal about how much they despise the God of Christians. They hate him because he's righteous and he judges people. They hate him because he has a monopoly on the truth and all of their efforts to manipulate word meanings can't undo his reality. People hate God because he defines what is good and what is right, and he defines what is evil and what is wrong, and God rewards good and punishes evil. And this is a great obstacle between man and God. Man finds God offensive. But in the cross, think about this, God not only removes our sin, which makes us offensive to God, but in taking our sin upon himself, God shows the immeasurable riches of his love for us, destroying all of our claims that God is offensive himself. God punishes sin by taking it upon himself. And for those who have an ear to hear, a heart that's soft enough to receive, this is, this is the undoing of our pride because we see Christ crucified and our pride is undone 
by that reality. We see in his life and his death, his love and compassion for us, his grace and mercy. We see both justice and forgiveness, and we're humbled. We find a God who cares for us so much so that he does all of the work to reconcile the relationship, although we did all of the work to ruin it initially. And God undoes our perception of his offensiveness. He overcomes the embarrassing pride that we have through his tender, gracious, humble love. And if we're honest, how could we as creatures hate the God who created us, who shows love for us in this incredible way? How could we not love him with all that we are? And so our fellowship with God is possible because he's done the work of removing the obstacles. And here I want to point out that our fellowship with God is actually a real relationship. This is another point that I I really hope you understand. That what Jesus has opened up for you is the possibility of a real friendship with God. And I hope you know what that means, not just intellectually, but also experientially. The fellowship that John is referring to is not some cold theory that we should put up on a whiteboard and scratch out on paper. This is a friendship with the God who is near to us. This is why I love to read the Psalms more than anything else in Scripture. Because the Psalms teach me that God is truly a friend who is near, who loves me with great affection. This God is a friend who is at my side and who cares for me, who is present with me and is working in the world for my good. And our relationship with him is very real. And I want to be cautious at this point. I want to kind of warn you real quick because there are many counterfeits to this relationship with God to our fellowship with God. Substitutes that creep in that we could easily mistake for fellowship. And John isn't referring to these things. And so I want to highlight them. And 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 let me say, these counterfeits are actually good things that just become corrupted. The primary counterfeits I'm referring to are, are these four. Sound doctrine, moral living, the forgiveness of sins, and church attendance. Let me explain. Every one of these things are very important and very good, but none of them are a substitute to fellowship with God. You can have the most excellent doctrine and still avoid friendship with Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. In some ways, our sound doctrine can be an effort to tame God and to keep him distanced from us so that he doesn't get too dangerously close to our hearts. Or the other one, you can be exceptionally moral and still keep God at a distance, hoping that because you're pretty good, God will mostly just leave you alone and not waste his time cramping your style. You don't really need him anyway. Or you can experience the forgiveness of sins and yet still not desire Jesus Christ. You love the idea of your forgiveness because it alleviates that deep-seated feeling of shame that you have. 
but you don't actually love the God who's forgiven you. Or you can belong to the community of the church because it makes you feel like you're accepted, but you can still not love God, avoiding direct fellowship and friendship with Him through the substitute of His people. But the fellowship that John speaks of is fellowship with God. It is direct friendship with God Himself. It's adoption into the family of Christ that sort of mediates that fellowship with God to us, but the great treasure of that fellowship is God Himself, and there is no substitute for that. Right doctrine, moral living, forgiveness, and church belonging, those are all fundamental aspects of the Christian life, and they are good and right, but all of them must flow out of a real relationship with God a friendship with Christ Jesus, or they're nothing more than a counterfeit. Christ came to offer friendship with God, and if you can't think of God in those terms as a friend, it may be that you've settled for a cheap substitute. But there's more to our fellowship with God. We need to press on because John is going to proceed in his letter to teach that fellowship with God also entails that we are like God. This is why I wanted Gabe to read all of John 17. God's purpose in entering into fellowship with us is to make us like Him, to transform us into creatures who reflect His character. God's great act in redeeming us includes in it eternal life. And like I already mentioned, that's more than just a time frame for our existence. It's also a reference to this quality of life, sharing in the life of Christ himself. John 17, 24, Jesus says that his desire is that we would be with him where he is. And our concept of human friendship can't even scratch the surface of this idea. We don't even have human language to begin to explain this. You probably know the great verse from Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Or that utterly stunning claim in 2 Peter 1, verse 4 where Peter tells us that we are partakers of God's divine nature. Again, John 17, Jesus tells us that his desire is that we would be one, sharing in his glory like Christ shares in the glory of the Father. And so in a sense, our fellowship with God means that Christ has taken his life and he's given it to us as a sort of extension of himself, so that we might share in the very life of God himself. And we share not only in his quality of life, but we also share in his purpose, the purpose of Christ's life, to glorify the Father, to love others, to share and to serve, to do good, to overcome evil, even eventually to rule and to reign with him in eternity as co-heirs of his inheritance. And the fellowship that I'm speaking about, it's not abstract. It's concrete. 
I believe that far too many Christians, maybe, maybe some of you in this room, would nod your head in agreement with the concept that we have fellowship with God. But even as you do that, there's no warmth that stirs in your heart actually experiencing that fellowship. I mean, really, let me ask you the question, do you know the fellowship of Christ? Do you know the experience of being near to Jesus? Not just the concept of the forgiveness of your sins. And I'm speaking about about a mysterious thing, no doubt, that we are friends with God. I think we'll spend an eternity coming to understand what that means in its fullness. And this is why John tells us our our fellowship is, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's dwell on this for a second. John wants to form our understanding of this fellowship with God by pointing us to the life of Christ where we can see this fellowship between Christ and God lived out in practice. The life of Christ, think about this, was marked by sweet times of intimate prayer where Jesus simply met with God the Father. Do you do that? I think these times of prayer must have been filled with praise and thanksgiving, not mostly begging and pleading. And that praise and that thanksgiving led to joy. Does that describe your prayer life? Christ's life was also exemplified by a great trust for God, where even when the hardship came, Christ was unmoved because he knew that he was secure in the Father's love. Is your life marked by that same kind of confidence? Or is it defined more by worry, a sense of aloneness, that you got to do this yourself. Jesus claimed that everything he did was a life lived as an extension of what he saw the Father doing. Is that how you think about your life? God inviting you into what he is doing rather than you inviting God into what you are doing. Do you think about your life like Christ who said that he was basically like a little child looking at his father in imitating what he saw the father doing. That's what fellowship with God looks like. And we can imitate Christ and we can be confident that his example will lead us to intimacy with God. And we can see that Jesus was obedient. Every command that the father gave him, he did. And that obedience brought him close to God. It wasn't like Jesus lived his life simply avoiding sin. That's not enough. His obedience was both a cause and effect of his nearness to God. And he was near to the Father. His heart burned with a desire to see the Father glorified, to see the Father's name be known. And so we can look at the life of Christ and we can go, that's what fellowship with God looks like. Not an abstract idea, but a present reality. And that's a great possibility for us. Do you believe that? So we're going to move to reflecting on joy. But before we do that, I want to just say a few things in summary and kind of application here. And I'll try to be quick. Our fellowship with God explains why sin is so bad. 
because it breaks that fellowship. It interferes with that relationship. It ruins that friendship. Our fellowship with God explains why the Scriptures are so important, because through them we come to know God. Our fellowship with God opens our eyes as to why prayer is so crucial, because in prayer we stand face to face with God, in communion with Him, directing our praise and adoration and love towards Him. Our fellowship with God explains why the church is so vital, why refusing fellowship with other believers is not a small thing, because it's the tangible experience of God's fellowship mediated to us through others. Now, you're often taught you need to avoid sin and read your Bible and pray and go to church, and hopefully now you understand at least a little bit of the reason why. Because through those things we have fellowship. These are tools that help develop our friendship with God. And so if you want deeper fellowship with God, here's my recommendation. A simple prayer. Father, I want to know you. And then after that prayer, go and pray. Study your Bible. Fellowship with other believers. Walk in obedience. And you can be sure that God will respond to that prayer and use your action to give you greater fellowship with God. Now, before we move to close, we need to take a few minutes to think about joy. Because John says he's writing these things so that our joy might be complete. It's hard to talk about joy at the end of a sermon when it's warm and it's sleepy time. But hang with me. Notice how fellowship with God and with his brothers and sisters in Christ informs John's thinking here. John doesn't say, we write these things so that you would have fellowship and so that your joy would be complete. Because our fellowship with one another means that what you experience is also my shared experience. It should be anyway. I don't know that we do so well at this when we look at the church in America in the 21st century. When the church is operating in a way that reflects the fellowship of God in his Trinitarian nature, then all joy is shared joy. When you celebrate, my heart should be moved to celebrate. All victories are shared victories. When you walk in obedience, I should be encouraged by that. All heartache is shared heartache. When you hurt, I too should hurt. And all suffering is shared suffering. So John writes, not for his joy only, not for their joy only, but for a mutual joy, our joy. And here's where fellowship with God truly leads to. It leads to joy. We should be joyful people. And here's why. Let me read a quote from Dallas Willard that might expand our thinking on this. He writes, We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he's full of joy. Undoubtedly, he's the most joyful being in all of the universe. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. 
All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink, tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continually experiences in all their breadth and depth and riches. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through His being. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them. But God is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and right and beautiful. And this is what we must think of when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of Him as a perfect being. This is His life. Constant joy. And the reason why our fellowship with God leads to joy is because God is perfectly joyful at all times. And the closer we get to Him, the more that joy is going to permeate our own hearts. And through our fellowship with Him, He shares this inexhaustible joy with us. God radiates joy like the sun radiates light. Joy is not a passing feeling in the person of God. It is His nature to be joyful in the fellowship of the Trinity. God rejoices in love. He rejoices in the truth. He's full of joy because He's good and just and right. God overflows with joy, and that overflowing is part of His motivation for even creating you. That His joy might go beyond and an aspect of God's blinding glory is the radiance of His joy. I mean, when you finally get to stare into the face of Jesus Christ, joy will so overwhelm your heart. His joy given to you and everything the human heart desires. Let me rephrase that. Everything that your heart desires, everything your heart longs for, yearns for, and burns for, every need you have, every desire is satisfied in the joy of God's glory. That's what you long to look upon. Everything you were created for flows to you from the infinite well of God's goodness through your fellowship with Him. So let me just, in closing, list a few ways in which joy comes to us as Christians, okay? The joy that is behind what John is thinking about. We rejoice in the certainty of our salvation. Paul exclaims, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That should bring you joy. Nothing can sever you from the love of God. We know joy because we've been accepted without condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All of those thoughts that constantly assail your mind about what a piece of crud you are, no, God pierces through that. And you can rejoice that He says, you do not stand condemned because Christ took that. God's love has been poured out on us apart from any performance on our part. We didn't earn or achieve the status of being His beloved. It was given to you in spite of you and not because of you. Rejoice. 
We know joy because we have an enduring hope that goes beyond circumstances. This may be the year that you bury someone who is dear to you. Rejoice in hope. What can man do to us? What troubles might fall on us that would snatch us from the love of God? So we rejoice in hope. Christ has conquered all things. He's conquered death, and all things are in subjection to him. And joy is found in the truth that every wrong will be made right and every evil vanquished. That experience that you suffered that haunts your memory, even that God intends to rework for good. So that you might say, what a glorious God this is and what joy I find in his salvation. Like the ending of a movie that seems too good to be true where all the bad stuff is sorted out in the end. Do you ever have that feeling at the end of a movie? It's like, yeah, but it just, it's a little too perfect. That's what we're moving towards. And joy is ours because Christ has told us that through fellowship with him we can live a carefree life. Why are you anxious? The chains of anxiety have been undone. Rejoice. Your Father in heaven delights to take care of you. And all the human hurts or pursuits that usually leave us jaded and bitter and hurt, they found their answer in him. Beauty, wealth, security, meaning, all of those things find their answer in Christ through fellowship with him. All the desires of the human heart are joyfully satisfied through fellowship with God. We're going to take communion now. So why don't you pull out this funky little single-serve communion cup. And I'm going to give you a second to open it. There's a little plastic film on top that you have to open to get the wafer. And as we take this together, I mean, isn't this a beautiful time to do communion after a teaching about fellowship with God? I want you to flip real quick in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I know this is tricky because you've got grape juice in your hands. One of the purposes of communion is to remind us of our fellowship with God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's talking about communion here, but actually underneath that word participation in the ESV is the same Greek word koinonia, fellowship, the same thing that John has been talking about in 1 John. 
And so we could translate this verse like this, and maybe this is how your version does it. It's, it could say, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not fellowship in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? And so here's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, through his body and his blood, has made a way for us to have fellowship with God, friendship with the Father, And in that, our souls should well up with shouts of joy. Christ, by his sacrifice of blood and the nourishment of his body, has brought us into that very same fellowship of the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Luke records the moment Jesus left us with this holy sacrament and says, And Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your fellowship that you've extended to us. The friendship eternally shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The perfectly loving, intimate community of God, three in one. Now through the death and resurrection of Christ, His atoning sacrifice, His propitiation for sins now extended to us. God, we are in awe, not only of what You did for us in the sacrifice of Christ, but also for what You have given to us. That we now belong to the fellowship of God, Lord, would you teach us what that means? Would you encourage us to rejoice in that fellowship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.